welcome back to another episode of Behind the Future. I am your host, Maeve McCrossan. And I am the other host, Sarah Durbin. On this podcast, we discuss the history of absolutely everything, from the smallest objects to the largest movements. And exactly why they're relevant to us today. Every week we have two stories. One of us discusses a small piece of history in a short and sweet nutshell, and then the other delves into a chunky history, exploring a larger historical topic. Best of all, neither of us knows what topic the other will talk about that week. So if you liked history class in school, then this is probably the podcast for you. But if you liked the two class clowns running commentary of those classes, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Welcome Welcome to to Behind Behind the Future. Future. Oh, I can already feel I'm going to be tongue-tied again today. Like I can already feel I was was stuttering through that (laughs) intro. Last week, I genuinely forgot how to talk. Did you edit oh, out yeah. the insanity? <laughs> Jane yeah. I could not Well, talk. to be fair, that, that story was a tough one to tell because she was changing her mind left, right and centre about all her she beliefs. She knew where she was going. I don't know if you've experienced this, but like we look at these stories so often. Like we're constantly, at least me, I'm, like we're, we're constantly researching these stories. I haven't been surprised by a history in a long time, but Jane Doe. That really, not Jane Doe, Jane Roe, Jane Roe. Jane Roe, yeah, sorry. Jane Roe really, like, I was taken aback. That had so many twists and turns. My God. We went on a journey. If you haven't listened to it, listener, go back and have a listen to last week's episode. And if you've never listened to us before, welcome. Hello. Because, uh, yeah, what are you doing? Uh, (laughs) Go back to the start. I think think our, our episodes are very, like, you can listen to them chronologically and you won't miss out on anything because it's history. It all happened in the past. And also, interestingly, our small talk, like our intro talk and stuff, is like a timeline of the coronavirus because we chat <gasps> about like, oh, what's free, what's not, what that's we can do true. now, what we can't. Yeah, like the odd time. That's not all we talk about. Don't worry, we're not that depressing. Sometimes we talk about other problems. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of them. <laughs> Can I be very honest though? And I don't know if this is a bad thing, but I, after we stop recording, I immediately forget what the episode was about. Immediately. Not just your story, my story too. And I've spent all week re- like researching this. I will immediately forget it as soon as we log off. Yeah. Sometimes I'll see an episode and I'll be like, oh my God, I cannot remember one fact yes. from that. And I was, re- and you'd research it all week. You'd live and breathe the story, especially if it's a chunky, because you're you're constantly at it. And the next thing you'd be like, for God's sake, I like one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast was gain profound historical knowledge. And I still look back and I'm like, oh God, I can't remember what name that is. Or people exactly. will ask me, and they think I'm a genius now. And I'm like, Honestly, man, I'm going to have to look at my notes here yeah. on my phone. Sarah, I'm exactly the same. Like, and uh, like to the point where I think I said this to you a couple of weeks ago, I spent like 20 minutes doing research, just the smallest bit of research on marijuana until I remembered that you had done it. Because I was like, this all sounds really <laughs> familiar. Like, really. I was like, I don't think I knew this before. I'm just going to open. Sorry. Alan got me an iced coffee. What kind of iced coffee did you get? Alan got me a venti iced latte with soy milk vanilla syrup and the same amount of ice that you would put into a small. <laughs> into oh, a tall you got a Starbucks. I got a Starbucks. Did I tell you Alan started oh, nice. um, driving? Oh yeah. 
Sorry, I'm just nice. ASMRing. You got a boyfriend who will get you Starbucks all the time. Huh, that must be nice. It's wonderful. I am going to tell you the history of tampons today. <laughs> Which yes. is surprisingly like extent and surprisingly very interesting. I didn't think I'd get as much out of this as I did. Was your research specific to tampons or did you venture into other sanitary products at all? I did indeed. I I touch on other sanitary products, but I keep the timeline focused on tampons specifically. But you can't really talk about one and not the other. According to Nancy Friedman's book, Everything You Must Know About Tampons, dated 1981, The sanitation solution dates back to the 15th century BCE, when Egyptians made tampons out of softened papyrus, which is basically the stem of water plants. They used that to make paper as well. Am I right? Papyrus? Oh, yes. I think I read that somewhere. Yes. Like the scrolls. they They made a good few things out of this. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. I'm sure it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but oh that God. is cool. All, all of these like ancient methods, I can only imagine. Because <laughs> the Greeks in the 5th century BC made tampons out of lint wrapped around wool. And then in ancient Rome, women used wool tampons. Tampons made of wool, <laughs> which could not have been pleasant. Great. In Japan, they used paper and held them with a bandage and they changed it on average 10 to 12 times a day. That's traumatizing. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh my goodness. In Asia and Africa, women used the furry part of native plants and rolls of grass. Rolls of like native grass. <laughs> which is sounds really uncomfortable. It's just, it, it's funny to me as well. Like a solution for this does not really come about until the 20th century, like a, a real marketable, usable solution. And it didn't become popular till the late 20th century. You think something biologically done by women monthly would have an earlier solution date, if you get me. Like this is, some, this is a problem since the beginning of time for women. And, and only recently have we come up with a solution. There is no doubt in my mind that if men had periods, we would not be talking about this happening so late in history. This would have happened day two of existence. They'd have been like, oh, better fix that. (laughs) Day two, they'd have figured it out. Not saying that like women couldn't have figured it out themselves. Just... We do actually, what is interesting about this particular find is that yes, we have to credit men with actually coming up with the solution. No, it was actually men that uh, wanna... <laughs> that nope. invented the, the tampon. <laughs> and some of the stories are quite a, a noble, I must say. So I, I'll fire away into them. But um, before that, uh, in medieval times, women would use pads made of scrap fabric or rags made out of cotton or wool. Very simple. Between 1854 then and 1921, the US granted 185 patents for menstrual devices. And these were, some of them are crazy. One of them was a rubber apron that just basically protected your clothes from getting stained. It is the weirdest looking contraption. I will put it up on the socials. You're going to want to see that. And some of the devices were just too intimidating with their complicated composition and application. They were just weird instruments. They looked really uncomfortable to use and 
they they just look like little machines really mm. <laughs> they weren't really designed I'd for say. comfort really really impractical in the 1920s, Kotex arrived on the scene, providing women a soft absorbent pad consisting of a material that was used to aid the wounds of soldiers in World War I. Fun fact, in their ads, Kotex would encourage women to, quote, ask for Kotex, unquote, at a shop to be discreet about their purchase or place a coin in a jar and shyly take a pad from a box to avoid interaction with salespeople. <laughs> That's sad, isn't it? Like... it? It is. So a man named Dr. Earl has wanted to create something better than this, the system of putting the coin in the jar, to replace the uncomfortable sanitary napkins his wife and patients used. In 1933, he patented his new invention, Tampax, which was the first tube-within-a-tube applicator. It was a highly absorbent, compressed line of cotton with a disposable applicator attached. That was like 10 minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Though his invention revolutionised menstrual products, has failed to create much interest in the product. There is like, there is so much taboo over this. Like women are very reluctant to to use them even. Um, There's several examples of that here. And in the same year, he sold a patent to a businesswoman named Gertrude Schulte Tendrick. Tendrick hired women to manufacture the item, along with salespeople to market the product effectively and nurses to give public lectures on the benefits of Tampax. However, despite this, she struggled to turn a profit and therefore sold the company in 1936. Tampons faced opposition from church groups and even some gynecologists. I'd say they did. (laughs) The the argument I read, I'm sure there was several, was that it takes away a woman's virginity. Oh, for the love of God, that's so dumb. I hate that. That has enraged me. I knew you were going to say that and it's still surprised me how much I hate that that's so stupid takes away the virginity what do you think happens when a woman puts in a tampon what do you think the sensation is like no fertilisation is occurring here like nothing nothing tonight that's really funny taking away virginity (laughs) are you a virgin no oh who was your first a tampon a tampon do they have any understanding of basic <laughs> biology? Do you know who'd say that? Do you know who'd say that a tampon could take someone's virginity? A virgin. An absolute virgin <laughs> would say that. That's annoying me though so much. An incel. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, and, and gynecologists as well, my God. But, but scientific studies would soon counter this op- opposition, obviously. Um, and revealed to the public that they were safe to use. It's it's a piece of natural material on a string. Like it's it's it's. Oh, it's oh, funny. That's annoying. I'll be mad about that now for the rest of the episode. Sorry. No, I won't. I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> In 1944, then the Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. Who, who you may be familiar with his name. Apparently this Archbishop had a lot to say about a lot in society, in, in Irish society, uh, to do with sex when he was around. Um, 
but he expressed to the Secretary of the Department of Health his disapproval concerning the use of tampons, particularly by, quote, unmarried persons, unquote. God, what a weirdo. What an absolute weirdo. But during World War II then, when more women went to work, tampons became essential and tampon sales soared, much to the Archbishop's disappointment. I'd say he cried himself to sleep. I'd say it was awful, awful upset. That's so funny. There's so many things that could go wrong in your life. And then you'd be like, oh, tampons are selling well. This is a death to humanity. It's like, you know what? You'll be suffering a lot more when like real stuff happens to you. Yeah. Don't get upset over this. Real stuff. You're absolutely right. Real stuff. Oh. After, after World War II, basically, tampons did become kind of a, a usual thing. There was still some level of taboo. So in 1972, then, the National Association of Broadcasters lifted its ban on advertising tampons on TV in America. Fun fact, in 1985, Courtney Cox was the first woman to say the word period on TV. After this, advertisers slowly began showing the product and discussing more details in their ads rather than simply showing the box. Fair play, Monica from Friends. Monica, you're doing us justice. <laughs> um, now, one of my most interesting finds about the history of tampons was this man, who I'm about to butcher his name because it's Indian, Aruna Chalam Moragananthum. Okay, a.k.a. the Tampon King, <laughs> we'll call him that, was an Indian entrepreneur who became distressed by his wife's use of old rags as sanitary napkin alternatives. So in India and some places currently around the world, it is still taboo. They still don't have solutions, especially in third world countries. They do not have sanitary products for women. And, and if they do, they're too expensive. In 1998, he decided to create a solution to the taboo subject of periods in India. Get this. He quickly ran out of female volunteers to test his experimental solutions and so took to wearing a bladder of pig's blood to substitute. <laughs> right. He was soon ostracized by his community and family for his attempts. Like they were like, this is too weird, too taboo. You're going way too crazy with this. But after two years, he created a low cost sanitary pad made of cellulose fibers and imported inexpensive machines that required minimal training to produce them. And in 2014, he was included in Times Magazine list of 100 most influential people in the world. Oh, what a dose. <laughs> I know, but it's kind of weird that he. It's kind of weird the the methods oh, which, but it must it, it must be noted he came from poverty, like he had no money. That's why this all had to be super low cost. He couldn't pay people to yeah. advertise them, and he'd even go to colleges, I believe, to try and get women to to try them out and to try and to test them out for him, but also to use them, start using them, and and use the solution that he was offering. In the US then, the Tampon Safety and Research Act was introduced to Congress in 1997 as an effort to create transparency between tampon manufacturers and consumers, though this bill has not yet been passed. There was this brand of sanitary towels. It was, well, no, it was under the Always brand, but they were a different kind. They were called Infinity 
And like, okay. I feel like nobody's going to remember this. They were available in Ireland for as far as I can remember, like six, nine months. And then they just vanished. I couldn't find them anywhere. And then I went over to America, found them everywhere. But America is weird. Like they'll have TV ads for like seriously strong painkillers that you should not be able to purchase from your shop. Like it's, it's they, they're really weird about that stuff. They will. It's like a free for all over there. Isn't that mad? We're, we're, we're down place, but uh, I know we love America. Woohoo! Go <laughs> Eagles! <laughs> um, do you remember in 2020, a Tampax ad was banned by the Advertising Standards Authority for Ireland after receiving 84 complaints for having, quote unquote, sexual innuendos and, quote unquote, excessive detail? excessive detail my ass I watched the ad again I watched the whole cut I watched the long cut and I was waiting for the the sexual innuendo because I'd only seen it once or twice yeah I was waiting for the excessive detail where is where's the fuss coming from I was I was literally like I watched it twice because I was like okay maybe I'm missing something try and look at it from a different person's point of view I really can't there's worse stuff on the tv than this there's Re- like we can show we can show car crash ads but we can't show this and this might be a little bit TMI right but with the lack of information on how to actually use tampons I would have sincerely appreciated the information that that advertisement <laughs> was, was communicating I was going to say that like literally like I needed this information 10 yeah. years ago literally need, we need stuff like that we do it, like yeah, I need we do need more ads like that. I think that was a brilliant ad because you're like, oh, this is how I won't be painful in my everyday life. This is how you use a tampon. It was informal, it was conversational. <sighs> Just being normal about it. Compared to what we got, which was either really clinical and oversimplified, or you shouldn't be aware that you have a downstairs undercarriage, lady. <laughs> Don't know if that was anyone else or just me in my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was the exact same. Funny how you mentioned Americans, because we're obsessed with Americans. Um, We are. Their history is just so... Because they're such a new nation, say. (laughs) They literally went from one to 100. Yeah, exactly. And it's very easy to map out exactly what happened when. I decided to look into... The Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, okay. This is no, this is interesting. This was another one where I had to like heavily edit it to get it to fit even into a chunk. The earliest version of what has been called the Pledge of Allegiance or a Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1887 by a guy called Captain George T. Balch. Balch? Okay. I'm going to say Balch. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, but that's what it looks like. Balch was a Civil War veteran and he found himself a job as the auditor of the New York Board of Education. His pledge was pretty short. It just read, We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, one flag. Which I'm not loving, but... (laughs) You know. I don't love the mantra you're getting there, Balch. It's not vibing with me. (laughs) I think anytime I've seen anything that like references a one anything, mm. not loving it. It's just not inclusive. Um, Balch was a proponent of teaching young children that they should be loyal to the United States. 
and he was particularly passionate about instilling this value into children of immigrants. Again, <coughs> Balch is kind of creeping me out. So while this pledge was technically the first pledge of allegiance that was widely used in schools in the US, this was pretty much like mostly forgotten about by the time that the Pledge of Allegiance we know now was kind of last edited, I guess. And you'll know what I mean um, when I kind of go into it a little bit more. So by the early 1890s, there were multiple patriotic groups in the United States who at the same time, so in tandem, wanted to promote the same things that Balch did, the same guy. At this time too, the Civil War had been and gone and there was a large influx of immigrants who were travelling to America for employment and to get a better life for their families. Which I think scared a lot of people. Like, we'll go into that a little bit more. But I think, you know, and it's it's still oh. prevalent today. I think yeah. I, I really like this history because it's still really relevant. There's still the same kinds mm. of arguments going on in America today. But that scares some people when immigrants come to countries that's so I. yeah i find that in britain and america particularly they are yeah. like not up for diversity like not no. as much as other nations in my opinion i think it is it, i know it's such a like it's a trope at this stage that people are worried about immigrants coming in and stealing all of the jobs but <laughs> that does seem Hello. to be like <laughs> what do you think i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> but I've always felt accepted here Like I've never ever experienced any form of Of like get That's out of our good. country In the Netherlands Yeah like yeah, I don't Yeah like why Why? Who, who owns this land Like I'm only going to be here for like average 90 years Like <laughs> nobody owns it I fucking agree with you To be honest Who cares <laughs> In the general public at this time Patriotism wasn't as strong as it once had been so the vast majority of people, like, they weren't really into patriotism like they would have been in the Civil War. Because the Civil War had caused so many people to think really patriotically. And then by the 1890s, I think people were just tired. Um, I'm sure there's a word for that, but, like, after conflict, when, like, the general public of a country just gets tired, mentally like fatigued. Now, after coronavirus. Right? Or, like, <laughs> I was actually, when I saw that, I was thinking of 19, in 1921 in Ireland, um, like one mm. of the reasons why the treaty was signed, um, as per my research, was just because, like, the nation was exhausted. Like it was, there was such a mental fatigue, they couldn't fight anymore. You know, even if they wanted to. The Youth's Companion was one of the largest magazines at the time. Its target demographic was kids. Um, I looked into the magazine later on. It became a family magazine, but um. It was so popular. In 1892, they started a campaign where you could get free American flags if you got your friends and family to subscribe to the magazine. Like a <laughs> nice little incentive there. Um, the magazine created an official program for schools to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus reaching America. At the time, the general public would have been ignorant to a lot of what Christopher Columbus did and the kind of general person he was. Like, they wouldn't have been... Really, I'm now like don't get me wrong. The like Native American tribes in America at the time would have been fully aware, but when I say general public, I mean like honestly, white middle class working class people wouldn't have been hugely aware of it. They wouldn't have been aware of the genocide, um, or what Christopher Columbus himself was reportedly getting up to throughout his 
life. Uh, but this would have been a really patriotic day for the vast majority of the American public. So the Youth's Companion invited every school in the country to get involved in this program. The event that they were doing was they were going to raise a flag and just held a ceremony around raising the flag. They wanted to commemorate this kind of ceremony. They wanted to add something a little extra. So they got one of their advertising copywriters to write a little ditty. I'm an advertising copywriter. I didn't do it. Don't worry. A socialist Baptist minister named Francis Bellamy did it. Um, the owner of the magazine really liked him. They really liked his socialist uh, sermons that he preached. Um, so they got him to do it. And apparently he wrote this pledge within a couple of hours and it went like this. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Which is a little bit different to what we have now. Yes, Gas the Socialist wrote that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Crazy. Right. Yeah, I I too. I was like, oh, interesting. Who let that happen? <laughs> Francis Bellamy had a cousin who wrote books about socialism. So apparently his writing was really influenced by his cousin's writing. And as a socialist, he wanted to include the words equality and fraternity but ultimately decided not to because he knew that the state superintendents of education on his committee were against equality for women and African-Americans. So the guy behind this entire event, his name was James B. Upham, and he was a marketer for the company. Um, He was very patriotic and also, I didn't know how to say this, like he was really into capitalism. Like, but he understood that this served his patriotic self and it also served his need to sell magazines um apparently he was very open about that himself i i just noted this this is a trend that i see all the time today american patriotism being linked really heavy with capitalism really heavily with capitalism oh yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. i thought that was so interesting and I, i it sounds dumb but i never like put two and two together until i was looking at it back today and i was like I know people And utilising like the media to profoundly push that. So yeah, the same year, 1892, Bellamy and Upham had arranged for Congress and the president at the time, Benjamin Harrison, to announce a proclamation that made the public school flag ceremony the centre of the Columbus Day celebrations, which would have been really big deal. Upham really desperately wanted to promote patriotism, a love for America, and he wanted to help kids, quote, create an ambition to carry on with the ideals which the early founders wrote into the constitution, unquote. So he was really big into tradition, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that gave me sketch vibes as well. I was like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> those guys weren't the best. He personally said that if he could do this, then his life was worth it. That he, I think he said, it won't all have been in vain or something like that. It'll just, he'll, that was his life's purpose, he thought. Um, the Bellamy salute was practiced when kids would recite the pledge. But this was really, this was exactly the same as the Nazi salute, unfortunately. It was the left (laughs) arm outstretched, palm facing down, um, looking at a flag. But because of the Nazi party after the Second World War, Franklin D. Roosevelt changed this and just had the kids put their hand over their hearts instead. Um, They just didn't want to, I mean... Understandably, they didn't want to be associated with Nazis. In 1906, the pledge was changed for the first time from Bellamy's original composition. And it seemed to me like it was an amalgamation 
of the two pledges, so Balch's pledge and Bellamy's, there was a group called the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they had a magazine called the American Monthly, really big magazine, and they used new phrasing, I'll say it for you quickly, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands. I pledge my head and my heart to God and my country, one country, one language, and one flag. So Bellamy's didn't have any part of God with it, but Balch's did. Balch also had the part where he said my head and my heart, and the one country, one language, one flag. They adopted, when I say they, I mean the Daughters of the American Revolution, um, adopted the new pledge, Bellamy's pledge, officially in 1916, but apparently they used the old one, so they're kind of like muddled up version. I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, maybe I do. They're muddled up version <laughs> until 1923. Um, and then in 1923, the Daughters of the American Revolution, during the National Flag Conference, asked for the words, my flag, to be changed to the flag of the United States. So that immigrants would not have to confuse loyalties between where they came from, um, their home countries, and the United States. Okay, good. Yeah, that's, nice. kind of, that's more inclusive. Um, yeah. That might confuse kids as well if they're like, oh, my flag, but that's not where you came from. I don't know if this is true, but I actually think Bellamy, when he said my flag, was like the flag that he has. Does that make sense? Like, I think he was very literal about it. I could be completely wrong. But because every, like, they were they were promoting that everybody have, like, a copy of the American flag. You know how uh, weird Americans so, are. That's so flags. assumption. <laughs> we, need, um, we need to have it this. Is, oh, my goodness. It's the largest assumption of my life. But I do think <laughs> that could have been where he was coming from. And then the words of America were added a year later. Congress officially recognised the pledge for the first time in the following form on June 22nd, 1942. This is the following form. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Do you think this timing now with it, this being solidified in Congress in 1942 have anything to do with World War II? That they were getting very... This is America. Possibly. <laughs> Don't get you slipping up. <laughs> Possibly. So, oh, such a good question. The Under God edition. So, you know, now we'd say, well, we wouldn't, but they would say, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America, to the Republic of Fortress one nation under God. Right? That edition, like, caused a lot of drama, which is completely understandable. In 1953, the Knights of Columbus, they were a a Catholic organisation, but they campaigned for the under God part to be added. Harry S. Truman signed this into law, this change, um, and then it was official in 1954. It seems like the main reason they did this was to make kind of a public declaration against communism. Because if you can remember, specifically Stalin, his whole thing was that their society or that their nation was to be like uh, an atheist. They were to put the state above all else. Mussolini thought the same, yeah. Yeah. This was like a, a public declaration against communism. If the American government were to take a stand like this, adding under God to their like official pledge of allegiance, this as well, people were terrified of communism at the time, if you can remember from our previous yeah. episode. This made people feel a lot better 
um, weirdly enough. So from 1954 to 1998, kids in public schools did this pledge every single morning within the first half an hour of school, like every day. And then in 1998, Michael Newdow, who was a doctor and an atheist, he started bringing it to the courts to get this saying or this like phrase removed from the pledge. So in 2002, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the phrase under God was an unconstitutional endorsement of monotheism. Um, you know who else hates monotheism? Satanists. I love those guys. Um, sorry, every time I see that word, I think of <laughs> my one true love. Lucian Green. Um, anyways. You gotta listen to that episode. That was brilliant. That two-parter. I'm so invested in that. Um, this guy, Michael Newdow, he was in the courts for over 10 years. Um, I saw a really like large rundown of all of the reasons and whatnot he was in court. But he he kept going with this for over 10 years. Like, fair play to him. Because I agree, I don't think it should be in there. But I picked out some notable ones. In 2006... There was a case in Florida, Frazier versus Alexandre. I think I'm saying that right. A federal district court in Florida ruled that a 1942 state law requiring students to stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. Um, because of this decision, a Florida school district had to pay $32,000 to a student who didn't want to say the pledge one morning and was ridiculed and called unpatriotic by her teacher. A oh grown person looked at a child and was like, Oh, I believe it though. Some, some adults, and I'm sorry, particularly teachers. I don't know what it is that about that profession that gets them. I suppose they're dealing with kids, but that's kind of the number one rule you'd think of when you're going in there are just not equipped I know. for it. They're just no, not they're mentally not. okay to be teaching. And I don't know how this slips through the sand so easy. Oh my God, some of the things even teachers in my secondary school said to students, you'd be like, alrighty, that's yeah. not appropriate. <laughs> You're like, thank you so much. <laughs> I had a teacher, she was really nice to me. And then I don't know why, but she just turned on me. Or at least maybe it was in my head, but she just, I feel like she turned on me. I found the leaving her horrible, like, and everybody did. Mm. But I found it very difficult to deal with mentally. Everybody knows I'm very sensitive. But I thought it'd be in my best interest to take a year off before I go into college so I don't hate college. And it worked. But I worked for a year. But I remember telling this one teacher, because she was asking me what my plans were. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to save up and I'm going to go to America. And traveling around America. But she specifically was like, if you take this year off, you're never going to go to college. And I was like, oh my God, I heard that one as well. I heard that one said to people as well, you'll get lazy. She said exactly that. She was like, you're going to get lazy. You're going to get used to having a wage and then you're not going to want to go back. And I was like, well, okay. I think people that don't want to go to college just don't want to go to college. I don't think it's a question of lazy. Like they're going to have to work like with degree, without degree, like. I don't think it's a question of laziness. It's more a personal choice. (laughs) 100%. I did it. I was delighted to get back to college. I was so excited for it. And I wasn't excited the first September. So, Deirdre. I'm sorry, Deirdre. (laughs) (laughs) You should be (laughs) Deirdre. To 
Bonbon professeur. That was, I'm sorry, friends. So to finish off my story, back to the l'histoire, uh, in February 2015, this was the last occurrence of a, a court date. There's been so many in between. There's been a couple of instances where a party, like whoever it is, will appeal the 2002 ruling that under God was an unconstitutional endorsement of monotheism. You know that one? Um, yeah, there's been a couple of, of cases where they've tried to appeal that. And some have been successful. But then in February 2015, New Jersey Superior Court Judge David F. Bowman, he dismissed a lawsuit because he said that the Pledge of Allegiance does not violate the rights of those who don't believe in God and does not have to be removed from the patriotic message. So this was a case against the Matawan Aberdeen Regional School District because a student in the district basically worked with the American Humanist Association um, to bring this case to the court. They were arguing that the phrase under God in the pledge created a climate of discrimination because it promoted religion. I think people argue that it doesn't promote religion because you can have any God, but it does. Like it promotes religion. Um, yeah, and, and it says God, not Allah or uh, Buddha right. or like, can everyone customize it? Uh, you know, you're absolutely correct. And I think as well, when you think about the context, it's even like Bellamy's original one, even the other guy's original one. It was all about all these people under one flag, under one God, under yeah. one nation. You know, it wasn't You're like, right. yeah. these are all individuals. They've come from all over. It wasn't like, it wasn't like that at all. This particular case was arguing that this made non-religious people second class citizens under the eyes of this Pledge of Allegiance. But that's it. That's, that's one of the, which I thought was, really funny I watched it was like a two second video from NPR and they called their video something like the Pledge of Allegiance was an advertising ploy to sell mm. magazines which is true and which we've is done all what this it now. was <laughs> do you do schools still say the Pledge of Allegiance get up and say it every day until 1998 every single school did it and now it seems like they like it's so varied between schools it doesn't even seem to be state specific it it's like whatever the school thinks so like i noticed like the people that i would be friends with in america would be kind of maybe leaning towards conservative or at least their families would have been the more conservative um mm. the area the more likely they're going to do this at least maybe every morning maybe once a week that kind of thing but it's it's not like they don't do it every single morning now anymore, like they would have. Yeah. That's it. That's tampons and the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance oh, has a lot that. more history to it than I thought it would. That is so funny that that is how it originated from a magazine. An advertising campaign. Yeah. It was an advertising campaign. That's so funny. Often, often, it's so funny how the media like comes into history so often, almost Every episode, we have something that the media was a massive influence in pushing, whether it's politics, education, that's true. the church, like media just has this, I'm telling you, that's the root of all. If you want to change something, you got to get the media. You got to get to the media. I'm so glad we work in marketing. 
Yeah, so we're behind it all. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it. Yeah, that's the episode. Thanks for listening if you made it to the end. And be sure to follow us on the socials. You can get us on Behind the Future Pod on Instagram and Future underscore Behind on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, pledge your allegiance. Put in your tampon correctly <laughs> <laughs> and think about the history when doing it. And also, if you have any suggestions or you want to say hi or chat, just don't be afraid to reach out to us. We do get the odd lovely message and we really appreciate it. Any last words there, Mavan? No, not really. Should I? Okay. Should I do you want to them? pledge your allegiance? I mean, to find the future. I and pledge to allegiance to the podcast under <laughs> one. Um, <sighs> I'm not funny on the spot. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I'm not. Okay. No, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Next week I'll just come in and Next I'll just pledge my allegiance. Would, that'll be the intro. <laughs> New listeners will be like, um. <laughs> what is this that I've clicked on? And remember, don't forget. Oh, I love our catchphrase. I do too. We are perfect people. Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks for listening.